Hello, I'm Catherine Carr, producer of Talking Politics. Today's the last episode in this series of History of Ideas. It's about Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. Did liberal democracy really end up on top in the battle of modern politics? Or are there better ideas still to come? Talking Politics, History of Ideas is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading literary magazine. After each episode, continue your exploration of the history of ideas in their unrivaled archive of essays and reviews, films and podcasts, and find out more about how a subscription to the LRB can be an indispensable home learning and student resource by heading over to their website, lrb.me forward slash ideas. That's lrb.me forward slash ideas. In this series of talks, I have sometimes mentioned that the writers I've been discussing have a kind of catchphrase. And often actually it's four words long. So Hobbes's catchphrase is nasty, brutish and short. Constant, not so famous. Rich men hire stewards. Tocqueville, tyranny of the majority. Marx and Engels, workers of the world. Okay, it's five words. Workers of the world, unite. Arendt, the banality of evil. I imagine that Hannah Arendt got sick of being reminded of that phrase everywhere she went. But there's only one author, the one I'm going to be talking about today, who kind of became a catchphrase. His catchphrase has, for 30 years, been the thing that he's known for. Many people, it's the only thing they know about him. Francis Fukuyama, in 1989, said that we had reached the end of history. And those four words have dogged him ever since. In some ways, he's been running away from them. He's written lots of other books. He's come up with lots of other ideas. He's never disowned the end of history. You can see him on YouTube. I was watching him this afternoon at a conference in Munich just a couple of months ago, I think one of the last pre-lockdown events, talking about the end of history and the ways in which it's been misunderstood and the ways in which it's dogged him ever since. When people think of Fukuyama and the end of history, because it happened in 1989, that is, he published the article, which then three years later became a book, they assume that what he said was history ended in 1989. And 1989 is the year that the Berlin Wall came down, and essentially that the Cold War ended. And the West, or liberal democracy, or Fukuyama might say, our side, won. And so he's associated with not just that phrase, but the assumption that he was a triumphalist, a celebrator, that he was kind of saying, rah, 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 we won, about the Cold War, and about the fundamental struggle between the liberal democratic version of modern politics and all the other kinds, particularly the Marxist or communist kinds, the ones that essentially collapsed in 1989. So Fukuyama is remembered for a catchphrase and for being a celebrator, sort of optimist about the fact that the good guys won, our side won, and history is over. And as he's been saying ever since, he didn't say that. He can't have said that. It wouldn't have made any sense. 
First of all, because the article that was published and made him famous and made that phrase famous was in the summer of 1989. So that's before the Berlin Wall fell. I don't think Fukuyama, who at that time was a relatively junior official in the State Department in Washington, knew that the Berlin Wall was coming down any more than anyone else did. And he says explicitly in the article called The End of History, published in a relatively obscure American journal called The National Interest, I don't think anyone thought that he and it were about to become world famous. As he says in that article, he's not predicting anything. In fact, he's not making a point about any particular events. And one of the odd things about the article, if you read it, is that it is a little bit prophetic, but inadvertently, because he says, my argument here holds regardless of what might happen over the next months or years. It was clear in 1989 that the regimes of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union were in deep trouble. But he says, my argument still holds even if they don't collapse or if there's a counter coup and the old regime is restored. He says, my argument holds regardless of what might happen in the Middle East. Maybe there will be the establishment of some kind of caliphate. A fatwa will be issued against the West and people will rally to that cause. He isn't saying anything about what will happen in particular. He's making an argument about the ideas that, in his mind, exist at the end of history, not because history has ceased or stopped, but because it has reached, as he says, its highest point, that these are the ideas that won't be superseded. That was his argument. The liberal democratic version of modern politics is the highest form, he thought, of modern politics. And for that to be true, it's not because something happened in 1989. In fact, Fukuyama, I'm sure, would say that would be an absurd argument because liberal democracy didn't change in 1989. The Soviet regime changed because it started to fall apart. But liberal democracy in 1989 was like it was in 1988 and frankly, not that different from how it had been at various earlier points in its history. It changed a bit, but its structures were the same. The ideas were the same of liberal rule of law, representation, organised around elections and certain basic freedoms and rights. Fukuyama says that the origins of the idea, the end of history, go back to the 19th century. He took the idea from someone I'm not talking about in this series, Hegel, so I won't say what Hegel had to say. But Fukuyama thought that the Hegelian notion, which is early 19th century, applies at the end of the 20th century this form of politics leaves politics nowhere else to go. We human beings have a million other places we could go. Our lives are still wide open. Our freedoms ensure that. But we're not going to come up with a better idea of how politics works than this. So Fukuyama didn't think he was saying anything prophetic. He was unearthing an idea in his mind that was nearly 200 years old. He wasn't talking about anything that was going to happen that year or the next year or even in the years to come. And as he said in the talk I've just seen on YouTube, he still thinks he's basically right. He's not sure whether China possibly now is offering an alternative to the West, but he remains unconvinced that it's a better idea, that the Chinese version of modern politics, which is not democratic, and in many respects is not liberal either, though it certainly is capitalist, 
he's not convinced it's a better idea. We'll come back to that at the end. So Fukuyama was not a triumphalist. He was not a prophet, but he soon became very famous. And so he turned the article into a book. The book was published in 1992, by which point the wall had come down, the Soviet Union had ceased to be the state it was in 1989, and the world had changed. It's clear he was trying already to get away from just being associated forever with those four words, the end of history. His publishers unsurprisingly didn't let him drop that as the title, otherwise the book wouldn't have sold. But he added some other words. So the book is called The End of History and The Last Man, four more words. And he takes those not from Hegel, but from another German philosopher of the 19th century, Nietzsche, someone else I'm not talking about in this series. Maybe that's for the next series. But what Fukuyama meant by and the last man was that this was not all good news. He was going out of his way not to be a triumphalist. In fact, if you read The End of History and The Last Man, it's a pretty downbeat book. Whether it was because he was already a little uncomfortable with his fame, whether it's because he was second-guessing the criticism that would come. But that book does not seem to be the work of someone who is a euphoric celebrator of the end of the Cold War. The end of the Cold War barely features. It's about big ideas over the last 200 years. And it's about all the things that can go wrong at the end of history. So the last man here doesn't refer to the final human beings. That's not the end in the sense that Fukuyama means. This is not what happens when things stop. But the last man is Nietzsche's idea of what might happen to us if we lose our essential human quality, our drive, our animation, our creativity, our ability to recreate ourselves. If we become, in some sense, functional people going through the motions. And the great risk for Fukuyama of what might happen in the era where liberal democracy is triumphant, is not that we become machine-like in the way that Arendt thought the banality of evil showed the dangers of being subsumed by the modern state machine, this thing that can do the most terrible things, and we can just become cogs in the service of that terrible machine. He wasn't imagining a world in which we become mindless robots, automata, just doing what the state tells us, even the liberal democratic state. But that we become slightly unimaginative, a little bit facile, that our politics becomes dull, unimaginative, safe, secure, prosperous, healthy, good, decent, worthwhile, but boring. The last man in this sense refers to people who have just slightly run out of steam. And so that theme, and this is someone I've talked about in this series, is Tocquevillian. And along with Nietzsche, the other person that Fukuyama writes about in the book version of the article that made him famous, but who didn't feature in the article, is Tocqueville. Particularly the ideas of volume two of democracy in America. That we could as democracy becomes the dominant form of politics, just drift along with it. It's that providential notion. And the end of history is a kind of providential idea. This is where history is heading. We are on a river 
that flows in a particular direction. And the risk, the Tocquevillian risk, is we just drift along with the current. It's just going to take us where it takes us. Prosperous, safe, liberal democracy, just moving along. And so that we become people drifting on the river of history. And so it's not really going anywhere at that point. If history is made by us, we're at the end of history when we let history just make us who we are. That's the danger. It's not terrible, though. I don't think Tocqueville thought it was terrible, and Fukuyama certainly doesn't. There are worse things. Tocqueville warned against the way it could end up with a form of tyranny, a form of sheep-like subservience. You don't get that from Fukuyama. You don't get the feeling, the Hayekian feeling, that we're possibly heading towards a future in which we do become mindless and simply cogs in the machine. He warns that the future, written in 1992, could be one of two possible models. One of them, he thinks, is that we might all become a bit Japanese. And by Japanese, writing at that time, he meant a country that had become incredibly peaceful, prosperous, successful. The Japanese state that emerged broken from the Second World War and then reinvented itself as a modern, liberal democratic state, presiding over a modern, liberal democratic and technologically sophisticated society, by 1989 looked like it was the coming superpower. And even in 1992, it still seemed possible, and many people were writing these books then, that the 21st century was going to be the Japanese century. Japanese industry was world-leading. Japanese technology seemed to be ahead of the rest. Japanese companies were buying up American companies. In 1989, the Japanese stock market was riding high. But in 1989, one of the things that happened after Fukuyama published the article was that the Japanese bubble burst. It hadn't burst to the extent when he wrote the book that he noticed that something had changed. He thought Japan represented a safe, stable, slightly boring future. It was, he said, in a memorable image, like the politics of the tea ceremony, elegant, dignified, decent, nothing much happening. The other example he gave of what he thought might be the future at the end of history was the European Union. This is the European Union of the late 1980s and the early 1990s. A bureaucratic enterprise, decent, prosperous, for many people, a way of imagining a future that was better than the present, but also unimaginative and a little dull. It didn't seem like the European Union would be a place that really big ideas came out of. It didn't seem like the European Union contained within it the possibility of political transformation. What the European Union was, was a means of holding on to what we had, securing it, making it a little better, it was an incremental organisation. It concealed its ambitions in modest language and bureaucratic language. Again, a little dull. Well, now we're nearly 30 years on, and those two examples of the end of history do look rather outdated. 
Japan is not a superpower. When the Japanese bubble burst, a lot of people thought throughout the 90s that it was only a question of time before Japan came roaring back. The Japan of the late 80s that people believed was about to replace the United States as the world's dominant economy, and potentially then would step up and become a kind of international political superpower and would have the ambitions to match. That Japan never came back. Japan got stuck in the 90s and in the decades that followed. These were the missing years, the years where growth more or less ceased, where deflation took hold, where Japanese society and Japanese politics was a kind of spinning of the wheels, looking for ways to reimagine and to re-spark what had been going on in the 1980s, and they weren't there. But Japan did not and does not feel like a society that is providentially surfing the river of history to its conclusion. Japan feels like a society that somehow got caught in the reeds. It's not flowing along. It's stuck. The European Union is almost the opposite. If the European Union in the late 80s, the early 90s, seemed a little dull, a little static, a little unimaginative, it doesn't seem like that now, and not just because of Brexit. The European Union seems fragile. The European Union seems fractious. The European Union also looks like it might have been a victim of its own hubris, the euro, the great project, the transformative project, now also looks like the thing that has created so much of the fragility and so much of the fractiousness. European Union politics are not dull. They still try and present themselves as dull. Many European politicians would like them to be a lot duller. But it doesn't feel like this is just politics without the energy, without the animation, looking for comfort and security and the easiest way out. This feels like the politics, where an awful lot is at stake, and an awful lot could still go wrong. Were the euro to fail as a political and economic project, even if we are, in Fukuyama's terms, still stuck with liberal democracy as the only idea we have for how to organise our politics, it would not feel like the end of history in the way that 1992 did. Japan and the European Union do not look like models of a safe, static, tea ceremony future. But as Fukuyama said in the original article, nothing that he argues for can be proved or disproved by particular examples and particular events. So even if the euro does fail, that doesn't invalidate the basic thesis, because the basic thesis is not about a place and the basic thesis is not about one particular instance of politics. It is about an idea, or rather a package of ideas. And Fukuyama still thinks that those ideas can't be bettered. So what is the package that stands at the end of history on this account? What is the idea that can't be undone even if particular political institutions fail? For Fukuyama, liberal democracy has two primary virtues. And what makes it unbeatable is the combination of the two, the fact that in liberal democratic states, they go together. The first of these is prosperity, or prosperity and peace, two versions of the same thing. 
a stable society in which people can expect a relatively long, comfortable life unless some misfortune befalls them, but it shouldn't befall them because their society collapses. A society in which they can reasonably hope that their children will be better off than they are, in which they can reasonably hope that they will be protected from some of the worst things that can happen. Secure, prosperous, peaceful, because liberal democracies have shown over their long history, and it is now a long history in some places, that they can deliver results. This is a form of politics that makes people better off. And that, on many accounts, is the fundamental challenge of politics. However you want to define better off, and it doesn't have to be defined in GDP terms, you don't even have to put a number on it. In the kinds of societies that Fukuyama was talking about in 1992, the Western democracies of Europe, but also Japan, the United States, and other places too, this form of politics was better for people because it produced better outcomes. And at the same time, it gave people a kind of dignity or respect because it gave them a voice. So liberal democracy, as well as making people better off, also allows them to express themselves, which for Fukuyama is a fundamental value and a fundamental need of any political society. There must be an outlet for people's desire to be heard. We are heard through elections, which are still a crucial part of what makes democracy so appealing. One person, one vote is also one person, your voice. And even if you don't get the result you want, you can't say that you weren't given an opportunity to express yourself. But the other freedoms of expression that come with that too, the ability to complain, what you might call the basic form of constant politics, that we can participate, maybe even we should participate, and if we don't like what's going on, we can say it, and we can say why, and we can expect to be heard. It's that package for Fukuyama that is hard to beat. Results plus respect. Prosperity plus dignity. And what makes it so formidable is that those two things appear to go together. One of the reasons why liberal democracies are good at leaving people better off is that they do have a voice. They can complain. They can let their rulers know their representatives know, when they feel they are being neglected, left out, when problems are coming that the politicians haven't seen. Liberal democracies are good at sounding various kinds of warnings, not about some of the crises that all political regimes stumble into, but about looming and lingering social discontents that will eventually have to be addressed. In liberal democratic states, the voters are able to tell the politicians what needs to be done, and the politicians have a strong incentive to try to deliver. And then the politicians will be replaced by other politicians promising something different. And if you're Hayek, you think that this system eventually degrades because it becomes a kind of auction of promises that can't be fulfilled. But if you're Fukuyama and you think that these states have durable institutions and reasonably well-informed publics, and politicians who have some idea of how the game is meant to work, things will keep getting better, and the self-correcting mechanisms will outweigh the self-destructive impulses. That's liberal democracy. That's why, at the end of history, 
it's the only idea left standing, Fukuyama thinks. And yet, here we are in 2020, and if we leave aside events and just look at the package itself, the combination of those two great virtues of liberal democracy, results plus respect, we can legitimately ask, does the package still hold together? That is a different question from Fukuyama's question, which is, can you think of a better idea? But the reason that that is the best idea is that the package does hold together in Fukuyama's terms. So if it's starting to come apart, it's at least possible that we're not at the end of history in the sense that there's not anything to come next in the realm of political ideas that can beat this combination. So what are the challenges to the package now? Well, one is the one that I mentioned and the one that Fukuyama accepts does pose a different kind of threat than the threat of Marxist communism. That's the Chinese version of state capitalism, which is not liberal democratic. People do not have a voice under the Chinese system that Fukuyama says is one of the essential features that places liberal democracy at the end of history. And there's a different combination of results plus respect in the Chinese model. In the liberal democratic model, the respect that we get is essentially as individuals or as individuals that can choose which groups we want to belong to. It's that basic liberal freedom that comes with being heard for who we are. The Chinese version increasingly tries to channel respect through forms of nationalism and national assertion and indeed a national demand for dignity, coupled with a kind of managerial delivery of results. So if the liberal democratic version somehow combines people having a voice with governments delivering in the long run, maybe not always in the short run, what makes people better off? In the Chinese system, something else is going on. A sense of national destiny and national dignity, coupled with the ability of a technocratic regime to deliver rapid material prosperity and growth is proving a formidable combination, but it is not the end of history combination. Fukuyama says now in 2020, that if in 20 years, this version of politics is continuing to prove its worth, he may have to accept that the argument that he made in 1989 and 1992 was wrong, but he doesn't believe it now. And I think one of the reasons it's reasonable to be skeptical is that it's not so clear how those two things go together in the long run, national self-assertion and managerial delivery of economic results. There isn't an obvious connection, but one reason not to be sceptical, one reason to think that Fukuyama might have been wrong, is that it's also a much older story than the story of liberal democracy. China is not riding a providential wave in the sense that Tocqueville described democracy as being the wave of modernity, that Chinese model of politics has some roots deep in the pre-modern world, deep in a conception of a society and a civilization, Chinese civilization, that can be dated millennia back, not just centuries back. And there is a view, a fairly widespread view, and not just in China, but among some people in the West too, that Western dominance of the last 300, 350 years, the time since Hobbes, is a contingent event. 
in the really long run of history, the Chinese way of organizing politics, the one that has roots well before the 17th century, is the default. The last 300 years could be the exception, not necessarily, but possibly. And if it's even possible that the last 300 years were the exception, this is not the end of history. Another reason for thinking that the liberal democratic package might be coming apart is what digital technology is doing to it, because in the time since Fukuyama wrote first the article and then the book, everything has changed in the space of information and in how we communicate and relate to each other through digital technology. Digital technology has greatly enhanced people's voice, our ability to express ourselves, our ability to be heard. Digital technology has also greatly enhanced our ability to solve certain kinds of problems, to deliver certain kinds of material benefits and results. It's had many downsides too. But broadly speaking, the digital revolution has made many people in different ways feel that they have more of a voice, and it's at least made some people in different ways better off. It's made a few people much better off the tech billionaires, but it's also distributed some basic goods widely, not least because so much of this technology is free to use. The challenge, though, is it's not at all obvious that those two trends are going together, that the problem-solving capacity of the digital revolution, its ability to devise new systems and new forms of connection that allow us to get better results, goes with its ability to allow us to express our anger and our frustration and our voice. Many people increasingly use their voice to express anger and frustration at the problem-solving capacity of the technology because so much of it seems to be in the hands of fewer and fewer people, because it feels technical and remote, because these solutions do not, for many people, seem to connect with their everyday experience and the things that they want to say and they want to have heard. Digital technology at least has the potential to pull apart the liberal democratic package that says voice goes with respect, results go with dignity. Again, we don't know. Nothing is necessary in this space, but it's at least possible that we're at the start of a period of history where the more people say what they think, the harder it is for the people whose job it is to deliver results, to deliver those results, because what people are saying is they hate having decisions taken for them. And that's a fundamental challenge to liberal democracy. And then the other thing that we might say, and Fukuyama has said in some of his other writings about the world since 1989 or 1992, is while so much has changed in the space of information and communication, and indeed economic functioning, we are globally and in many societies still much, much richer than we were back then, even if some of that has been very unequally distributed. The one thing that has almost not changed at all is the institutional architecture of liberal democracy, the way we actually do it, the institutions through which voice, results, dignity, respect are meant to be delivered haven't changed. And they do feel a bit like Japanese society feels, stuck in the reeds of history, 
not much has moved on in the institutional space while so much else has changed. And Fukuyama is now a much gloomier writer about politics than he was in 1992. And in 1992, he was much gloomier than his reputation suggests. But particularly about the United States, Fukuyama has warned repeatedly over the last decade and more that its institutions may not anymore be fit for the purposes of the end of history. That is, to show that there is no better way of doing politics than this, because the institutions look like they're stuck. They don't change, but at the same time, they don't allow for change. They don't allow for things to happen around them and outside them. One word that Fukuyama has used to describe American politics is that it's become a kind of vetocracy, a vetoocracy, where it's much easier to say why things can't happen than why they should. And if this is the end of history and the last man, then it really is a politics that's run out of steam because there's an enormous amount of noise, but there's very little delivery of results. And that is Tocquevillian politics of the kind that he feared in Volume 2 of Democracy in America. Lots of noise, lots of surface activity, nothing like the Japanese tea ceremony. Volatile, partisan, polarised, each side accusing the other of terrible injustices and terrible crimes against the state, and nothing happening, nothing changing. Impeachment trials where everyone knows the outcome. Both sides accusing the other side of deep conspiracies. Both sides accusing the other side of having no idea how politics is meant to be run. And yet politics continues to be run without anything changing. That version of politics, if it is the end of history, does not look stable or sustainable. At some point, something has to give. You cannot have a politics which is all noise and no results. At some point, either there need to be results or the noise is going to drown out liberal democracy. At the end of his book, The End of History and The Last Man, Fukuyama has another memorable image of how to think about what he's trying to describe. He says explicitly that the end of history does not mean the end of the human journey, and it does not mean that something new might not arrive at some point. He says all he's been arguing is that modern politics has been heading in the same direction and towards roughly the same destination, the destination being the modern liberal democratic state. Some countries got there quicker, some countries are getting there slower, some countries aren't there yet at all and may have a long way to go. But roughly and broadly, we're all moving in the same direction. And he says, then there is still another question, which is what happens when we get there. And we could just get stuck. We could just sit there. We could decide that this is where we are going to stay. Or, he says, we could regroup and we could move on. We could decide that having reached our destination, even though we don't know what might come next, we could try and branch out and find something new. And that there's always the possibility, even if we can't think of a better way of doing politics now, that a better way is out there if we just have the courage to go and look for it. And yet that doesn't seem like a convincing image either. Because we don't regroup 
and having reached our destination, decide to forge out for somewhere new. If this is our destination, it feels like we're still constantly trying to work out where we are and trying to patch it up. And it never seems the time to move on. There's no feeling at the moment that people believe having secured their resting place, having had a breather, that they can now take their courage in their hands and try for something new. The feeling of liberal democratic politics at the moment is of a desperate clinging on to something that we know works, or at least should work, and has certainly worked for us in the past. But we can't quite work out what's gone wrong with it. And we're trying to patch it up, and we're trying to hold it together and hold the package together. And we don't quite dare try something new, because we're also deeply aware that it's more fragile than we thought, and it could quite easily fall apart. That doesn't feel like a resting place from which we can set out for somewhere new. It feels more like we've arrived somewhere and we're just clinging on. There are other ways of thinking about the end of history too. I'll just give one example. In a book that's sold more copies than even Fukuyama's The End of History, Yuval Harari in Sapiens, and in his follow-up, Homo Deus, gives a different definition of what it might mean for history to end. Harari says that history is the story of human agency, that is, it's the story of human beings. And it's not just the modern story, it's a story that's maybe a 100,000 years old. History is what human beings do, what they make of the world. But you could say within that long story, there are two stories. Harari doesn't quite put it like this. There was that long period where human agency was what human beings were capable of. And then there's that more recent period when human agency has been enhanced by the artificial agency of modern states and modern corporations, the world that Hobbes helped to bring into being, a 350-year story to set against a 100,000-year story. So from human agency to human agency plus artificial agency, and the transformed world we live in, this incredibly prosperous, incredibly peaceful, by historical standards, incredibly safe world. Fukuyama's world, the end of history world. But human agency plus the artificial agency of states has created another possibility, which is that the artificial agents take over. The AIs, the machines, the number crunching devices, the machine learning systems, the algorithms, and human agency starts to become functional just in the service of the machine. And if that happens, if the machines don't enhance us, but we enhance the machines by providing them with data points, by providing them with the information that they need to do their work, then Harari says history's come to an end. Because if history is not primarily the story of human agency, then it's nothing then it's just science. I don't think Harari is right. I don't think we have reached the end of history in that sense, not least because, as I see it, in our world, it's still the question of how human agency relates to the artificial agency of states and corporations that will determine our future. And we can see enough, even in those questions about Fukuyama's story, to suggest that there are real choices out there in that space real choices about whether artificial intelligence will be run by states, as in the Chinese case, or by corporations, 
which is how it increasingly looks in the American case, or maybe by a legalistic bureaucracy, which is the EU model. Maybe the machines can still be subject to the rule of law. But those are political choices, those are historic choices to go the Chinese route, the American route, the European Union route. And they suggest to me very different futures. If the question is, who has the power to control these increasingly powerful thinking machines? That is a question inside history, not outside history, if it depends on how we relate to the states that govern us. One reason why I think we haven't reached the end of history, certainly not in Harari's sense, and probably not in Fukuyama's sense, is it still feels to me like we're living in a Hobbesian world, a world in which we as human beings depend upon the state that we built to keep us safe, and at the same time are fighting with the fundamental question of how we prevent that state from dominating us. And that state now coexists with corporations that in some respects have powers that even it doesn't have. And so we're also thinking hard about the question of whether that state can control those artificial agents, especially as those artificial agents increasingly own and control the thinking machines. These are still Hobbesian questions because they are about the things that we built to serve us and whether they do still serve us or whether we serve them. But it's always double. It's never a single answer to that question. You cannot say, yet we've reached the point where we do serve them any more than we can say of the modern state that it simply serves us. It serves us and we serve it, both at the same time. That was Hobbes's understanding. That was the modern condition. It was always going to be both at the same time, not either or. But both. And now, as I record this, it's May 2020, and this is the age of the coronavirus, of COVID 19. And I'm recording this in my house, where I am locked down by my modern state, the British state, not in a particularly oppressive way. I'm not that frightened of it, but I'm aware of its power. And everywhere in the world, people are aware of the power of their states the ability of their states still to decide their destinies, even as those states claim, and in some cases actually try, to serve them. The state has shown itself, the modern state, over the past few weeks, still to be a completely indispensable institution. It's very hard to imagine how any of us would be living through this time in the absence of these kinds of political units built not exactly as Hobbes said they would be built, but built in ways that do fit with Hobbes's imagination of what's possible. States with extraordinary power, states on which we depend to keep us safe, states of which we should be frightened, states which, when they get it wrong, can cause disaster, states which still have life and death power over us. Even the liberal democratic version of those states still have life and death power over us. But that's not all they have. We have power over them. Our political leaders are frightened of us, just as we are frightened of them. It's always both at the same time. And the modern state, as well as being indispensable, is also not inevitable. 
We can now imagine a world in which these institutions fracture. We know we live in a world in which these institutions can fail. And it's possible that the package that's held them together is starting to come apart. And even if Fukuyama's image isn't right, we haven't reached our destination, regrouped, and decided that it's time to move on. It's possible that we're going to have to move on anyway, whether we like it or not. The indispensable institution of the modern world, the modern state, is not inevitable, and it is not our inevitable fate. At the moment, it is indispensable, and it's also fragile. At the moment, it's impossible to imagine life without it, and yet life may go on without it before too long. But at the moment, it is still both. It's not either or. It's not either the state or us. It's not either the machine or the human. We still live in a political world that is dominated by the human machine that is the modern state. We haven't yet reached the point where we have to make the ultimate choice. Not yet. As always, you can find links to Fukuyama's writing and other reading material in our show notes or on our website. We do hope you've enjoyed these talks and we'd like to do more before too long. In the meantime, we'd like to thank Nick Carter, Stephanie Deepveen, Jane Darby-Menton and Charlotte Griffiths for all their help with this series. And we'd like to thank you all for listening.